the best in Bitcoin made audible. You're listening to Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have an awesome piece. I have kind of put the brakes on everything I had planned for the week because uh, Robert Breedlove just dropped another, uh, just an awesome uh, piece. I think it was yesterday. And I'm basically just having to push this forward because this is just going to be a great one. It's definitely going to take uh, two parts to get through this one. Uh, and then I'll probably release on Wednesday a full, like unabridged, no commentary version of the entire thing from start to finish, um, just so that it's easy to go back to, because this one is good enough that it deserves that sort of a piece or that sort of a standalone. Um, and uh, also it's long enough that it kind of <laughs> it kind of deserves that. But this is literally one of those analogies that I think is the only thing that truly describes the relationship between the people who have authority over the money and the people who are forced to use the money. Um, and uh, and it's, an, it's an analogy that every other thing falls short of explaining other than this. Um, and I think any any attempt to try to cover it up or make it make it seem like anything less than it is um is it doesn't do it justice it only does it only works to diminish the role that is being played in the power dynamic uh that truly is uh and this one just amazingly lays that out again this is by robert breedlove we've read numerous pieces from him in the past always great uh and without further ado let's start in to robert breedlove's masters and slaves of money Money is a tool for trading human time. Central banks, the modern era masters of money, wield this tool as a weapon to steal time and inflict wealth inequality. History shows us that the corruption of monetary systems leads to moral decay, social collapse, and slavery. As the temptation to manipulate money has always proven to be too strong for mankind to resist, the only antidote for this poison is an incorruptible money, Bitcoin. Quote, Knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave. Frederick Douglass In ancient Western Africa, agri-beads, small decorative glass beads, were used as money for many centuries. Of uncertain origins, these beads were a means of wealth transfer between people in trade, as money, and across generations, as dowries or heirlooms. When European explorers appeared in Africa in the 16th century, it was quickly apparent to them that agri-beads were highly valued by African locals. Since glassmaking technology in Africa was primitive at the time, agri-beads were difficult to produce and therefore reliably scarce relative to other goods, a monetary property which supported their market value. Back in Europe, glassmaking technology was more sophisticated. Counterfeit beads virtually identical to agri-beads could be mass-produced at a low cost. 
Seizing the economic opportunity, many crafty Europeans soon began arranging expeditions to Western Africa, shipping in huge quantities of indistinguishably counterfeit agri-beads, expertly fashioned in European glassmaking facilities. This scheme was one of the first known large-scale money counterfeiting operations in the world. What followed this seemingly innocuous exportation of glass beads was a multi-decade plundering of African wealth, natural resources, and ultimately, time. As European ships arrived on African shores, many with hulls packed full of glass beads, locals readily traded their hard-earned assets for what they believed were precious agri-beads. Spanning the course of decades, this trading of real assets for counterfeit beads facilitated a surreptitious confiscation of African wealth by Europeans, a slow-motion criminal episode that crippled African society for centuries to come. Agri-beads would later become known as slave beads. As newly impoverished Africans became desperate, some were forced to sell themselves or others as slaves to the European usurpers. Slave beads, one of history's many monetary systems weaponized by counterfeiters, became instrumental in the multi-century transatlantic slave trade. In a barbaric irony of history, ships landing in Africa stuffed with counterfeit agri-beads later departed for European and American shores with full payloads of precious human cargo. Inhumane and unforgivingly precise, masters of these slave ships packed their hulls tightly with African slaves, just like the glass beads that were used to purchase their captive human cargo in the first place. Unfortunately, this pillaging of wealth was not an isolated episode. Cloth strips were another form of money used in ancient Africa, which became a well-established transactional medium over many centuries of dealing with Muslim traders from the north. Local African tribes soon began producing these cloth strips, known colloquially as panos, but were outcompeted by the more efficient production methods employed by the Portuguese. A perversely profitable economic arrangement ensued in which the Portuguese used panos to purchase African slaves who were then put to work producing the very cloth strips with which their freedom was stolen. As Scottish historian Christopher Fife described this dreadful trade relationship, quote, Some of the slaves were weavers by profession and wove the cotton into country cloths as they had done on the mainland. New elaborate patterns of North African type were introduced, and from the middle of the 16th century, Cape Verde Panos cloth strips were regularly exported to Guinea to be exchanged for slaves. Lured by the virtually limitless profit potential, Portuguese Panos producers soon established a state-sponsored monopoly called the Graupara and Maranhão Company which mandated the use of its warehousing and trading post operations for all financial flows denominated in panos. This company enforced the use of panos for tax payments to forcibly denominate slave trade contracts and to hire soldiers. To name just one similar non-coincidental example today, the U.S. government enforces the use of dollars for tax collections as legal tender, as the nominal currency for contracts on oil, the energy slave of modernity, 
and as the international reserve currency, the infamous exorbitant privilege. Events strikingly similar to Agribeads and Panos are playing out today throughout the global economy. The U.S. dollar in your pocket, the one you sacrificed so much to obtain, was recently mass-produced by the U.S. government with a near-effortless keystroke. In the same way Europeans had access to superior glassmaking technology that gave them the ability to counterfeit money at a low cost, or the Portuguese monopolized Panos production, central banks have an exclusive privilege to produce money at near zero cost, enabling them to confiscate wealth from all users of dollars at will. Although less visible and overtly violent, central banks today carry out operations using the same weaponized methods of theft as those wielded by wily Europeans against unsuspecting Africans. Histories of human action related to agribeads and panos hold important lessons for societies suffering under central banking. Those who can monopolize money production become de facto currency counterfeiting operations that steal human labor in perpetuity. When free market forces are manipulated, producers gain an asymmetric ability to set prices without regard to customer preferences, thereby converting economic democracies into dictatorships and freedom into tyranny. For money, this implies monopolists can acquire human time, aka labor, in the marketplace at an unfair price. Said differently, money monopolists can steal human time, a malevolent power that effectively makes them slave masters. An exclusive right to produce money without regard for competitive market pressures is an apparatus of enslavement, a vile privilege that monopolists can only preserve through deception and violence. Counterfeit agribeads and panos were weapons used to acquire human time, acts which led to the direct theft of 12.5 million human lives between 1501 and 1806, and the indirect theft of their progeny. The transatlantic slave trade was a slow-motion holocaust on Africans. Roughly 2 million died in transit through the infamous Middle Passage, and those who survived spent the rest of their waking lives toiling away or bearing children to replenish their slave master's stock. Quantifying this atrocity from an economic perspective, not counting those born into slavery, assuming the average slave could labor 5,000 hours each year for 40 years, the staggering total time stolen amounts to over 2.5 trillion hours or 6.8 billion hours stolen per year for 365 years. The transatlantic slave trade was a travesty, as gruesome as it was gigantic. If only money production monopolies had faced free market competition, this horror of human history would not have reached such a colossal scale. In nonviolent market competition, Producer actions are guided by the preferences of customers, a dynamic that drives low prices and technological innovation. Absent this accountability, producers are incentivized to do anything necessary to expand their market share, up to and including violent coercion, 
Simply, market pressures keep people honest. As such, the structures of markets and moralities are mutually intertwined. Markets, Sovereignty, and Morality Quote, To be moral, an act must be free. Murray N. Rothbard Competition is a natural process of discovery. In sports, it is the way we discover which team is more competent in any single game. Throughout an entire season of play, repeated competition is how we discover which team is best overall. In free markets, competition is the set of games played to discover satisfaction of wants. Each entrepreneur places bets, investments of capital, money, and time, as they attempt to prove their competitors wrong in the marketplace by delivering better, faster, or cheaper solutions to the problems their customers want solved. Market competition is the catalyst of honest work and true progress for civilization. As the American pragmatist said, truth is the end of inquiry. In this sense, the free market may be thought of as a setting of continuous inquiry that zeroes in on truth. The ideas competition generates which withstand its sustained entrepreneurial inquisition, are our best approximations of truth. As William James said, quote, Any idea upon which we can ride, any idea that will carry us prosperously from any one part of our experience to any other part, linking things satisfactorily, working securely, saving labor, is true for just so much. True in so far forth. True instrumentally. Pragmatically, truth is difficult to distinguish from that which is most useful. In forums of free exchange, truth is generated in the form of accurate prices, useful tools, and individual virtue. Prices dynamically represent market participant concurrences on relative exchange ratios, a derivation of countless trade decisions across time. A tool with superior usefulness is the manifestation of mankind's sharpest present knowledge for solving a specific problem. Put another way, as entrepreneurs inquire about the nature of reality through experimentation, the tools they produce and the knowledge structure with which these tools are configured Adapt according to customer preferences until one or a few favored solutions become market dominant. Virtue and competitive competency are the character traits infused into successful entrepreneurs that manage to survive the constant economic pressures holding them accountable for profit generation. This truth-seeking function of free markets is inherently iterative. Prices, Tools and virtues are constantly changing according to market conditions. Points in market-based games of discovery are denominated in money, the tool used to calculate, negotiate, and execute trades most effectively. Market competition is the process that keeps producers honest. When it is suppressed through coercion or violence, as it is within legal monopolies, Truth becomes distorted into inaccurate prices, low-quality tools, and individual wickedness. For money producers, monopolization means dishonest producers become counterfeiters and gain a deceptive and violent dominion over human time.
contrary to conventional wisdom, money is not the root of all evil. It is actually just a tool for trading time or labor. The means by which market participants signify sacrifices and successes to one another across the history of economic transactions. Like all tools, money has no independent morality of its own. Tools are amoral, meaning they can be used for both good and evil purposes alike. The moral outcome of using a tool is inextricably dependent on the intention of its user. Money is a temporal trading tool, but as we've seen, it can also be wielded maliciously to steal time. In the same way a hammer can be used to build a house or bash a skull. More accurately, money, along with its precursors, action, and speech, is the root of all sovereignty the authority to act in the world as one sees fit. Sovereignty, a word etymologically associated with monarchy, money, and royalty, refers to the locus of supreme power in the sphere of human action. According to natural law, sovereignty inheres within the individual, as each person must consciously decide what actions to take despite any exogenous influences they may face. An inner sanctum of sovereignty's generative source lives within each of us, an inviolable principle of reason known as the Logos, an interface layer between the primary domains of experience, order, and chaos. The Logos is the defining feature of humanity. Our ability to tell and believe stories is what distinguishes man from animal. Viktor Frankl calls this interior space the last human freedom. Quote, The last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you became the plaything to circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity. End quote. From sovereignty, we derive the word reign, which commonly refers to a period of royal rulership. Most of us now live in an era well past submission to a royal family, and our civilization conception of sovereignty has been steadily decentralizing over time moving closer to a clear reflection of natural law. As Jordan Peterson charts this historical progression, quote, First of all, the only sovereign was the king. Then the nobles became sovereign. Then all men became sovereign. Then came the Christian revolution and every individual soul, impossibly, became sovereign. That idea of individual sovereignty and worth is the core presupposition of our legal and cultural systems, so we all walk around acting as if every one of us is a divine center of Logos. We grant each other the respect of individual citizens who are sovereign and are equal before the law. End quote. At the foundation of Western civilization today is the precept that the sovereignty of the individual is held higher than the state, an embodied belief at the heart of legal principles such as habeas corpus, the presumption of innocent until proven guilty, and freedom of speech rights. Freedom of speech, 
is essential to a peaceful society, as our ideas must be free to clash and resolve conflicts so that our bodies don't. Speech arose in humans as a direct result of our evolutionary development. Once a vertical stance was adopted by our ancestral primates, our visual field was expanded and our hands became more adept at manipulating the natural environment since they were no longer needed for locomotion. Newly outfitted with opposable thumbs, we developed a dexterity that enabled us to particularize the natural world in useful ways, like sorting things, counting, and making tools. Fine musculature in the face and tongue evolved alongside this precision of hand, giving rise to spoken language, which complemented the hand's ability to categorize the world and the mind's ability to comprehend it. Even our internal dialogue is composed of speech. An ability to manually reconfigure the world reinforced our abstractive capacity to do so verbally, thereby forming a feedback dynamic between these two defining faculties of man. This co-evolution of craftsmanship and verbal articulation led naturally to trade, and quite simply, the most exchangeable thing in any trading society is its most important tool, money. Seen this way, money is a direct derivation of action and speech, all three of which are essential media for sovereign self-expression. In this sense, money may be considered a form of speech in and unto itself, the language of value. Placing limitations on the use of this language, the purpose of central banks, is commensurately catastrophic to restricting the freedom of speech, which can lead to absurdities like illegal numbers. Free speech digs the grave for despotism, whereas its suppression is the trademark of totalitarian regimes. Indeed, the first effort of every aspiring dictator is always to restrict the voice of dissent, to darken the light of inquiry radiating from the Logos. The 20th century had many Logos-suppressing dictatorships. We will name two. Quote, In 1917, the Russian Bolsheviks moved to limit freedom of speech the very day after the October coup d'etat. They adopted the Decree on the Press, which shut down any newspapers, quote, sowing discord by libelous distortion of facts. Similarly, only a few months after coming to power in 1933, German National Socialists started to burn books, and the Ministry of Propaganda introduced strict censorship. End quote. Logos is a Greek word that means ratio or word, the principle at the core of interpersonal communications, which are largely conducted via words and prices, which are exchange ratios expressed in monetary terms. Both words and prices are categorical comparatives, protocols for encapsulating, comparing, and communicating different aspects of reality. Herein lives the power of the divine logos to render order from chaos. In language, consider how all words only have meaning relative to one another. All definitions are comprised of other words. In markets, the intersection of subjective supply and objective demand is the price, 
a dynamic figure reflecting the consensus of the collective logos on any particular goods exchange value for any other good, for simplicity expressed in the common language of economic numeracy, money. For money, governments corrupt the pricing mode of comparative expression by constantly violating the supply of money via inflation, while simultaneously compelling its demand via legal tender and tax collection laws. Distorting natural price discovery, a manipulation of the collective logos, is equivalent to perverting the vox populi, the voice of the people. George Orwell once said, quote, If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. An inability to speak the truth with words or prove others wrong in the marketplace with prices is the death of liberty. As the 20th century so painfully taught us, restricting the logos is a slippery slope toward totalitarianism. Free expression in all forms is antecedent to proper moral action. Like speech, money lacks an intrinsic morality of its own. However, its economic character does influence moral standards. As Buddha taught us, quote, Money is the worst discovery of human life, but it is the most trusted material to test human nature. Honest money encourages righteous action, and dishonest money induces moral hazard. To comprehend money's impact on morality, consider the hypothetical case of a winemaker living in a centrally banked economy. He knows that his central bank recently doubled the money supply by printing trillions of dollars to, quote, save the economy, and is now faced with three options. 1. Continue selling his wine for $20, knowing that the value of each dollar has declined 50% due to inflation. 2. Water down his wine or use cheaper ingredients, thereby decreasing the production cost and the quality of his wine, but continue selling it for $20. Or three, double the selling price of his wine to $40 to get the same value for his wine denominated in post-inflation dollars. For simplicity, we will ignore the spatio-temporal unevenness of inflation. If the winemaker chooses the first option, he incurs a 50% loss. If he decides to water down his wine, he defrauds his customers by selling them an inferior product. If he doubles his price to maintain quality, he risks losing customers to less honest competitors who are willing to compromise on quality. Since diluting wine with water is difficult to detect, for non-connoisseurs, and offers an immediate financial gain, all winemakers face strong incentives to defraud their customers when inflation strikes, a cause of wine scandals. In a similar vein, monetary inflation incentivizes sellers across all industries to deceive their customers. Inflation imposes the temptation of larceny onto sellers' hearts, forcing them to weigh financial well-being against moral integrity. In this way, Inflation is an infectious disease to society's moral fabric. Inflation-resistant money, then, is an antidote to an afflicted social morality. In this critically important sense, Bitcoin 
the only money with a 0% terminal inflation rate, is the cure for many of the moral cancers riddling our world. Money is a source of great temptation, as it can be considered the list of who owns what, since money can, by definition, be used to buy anything in the marketplace. When a singularly privileged group, a monopoly, can create money out of thin air, they can amend this list of who owns what arbitrarily and have a powerful incentive to do so to their own benefit. This money-as-an-ownership-ledger angle sheds light on the underlying impetus for central banking, an institution which arrogates itself as master of the list with an exclusive privilege to advance the interest of its private shareholders, even at the expense of enslaving everyone else. Since everything in the marketplace requires sacrifices of human time to produce, even land needs hands to sell, we can say that money is human time emblematized. In the same way a stock certificate is titled to company capital, money is titled to human time. People sacrifice time earning money which they can then spend on commensurate sacrifices from others. Clearly a tool that can command human time is an object of great temptation as it is a potent source of power, defined by physics as work over time. A lust for power is the motivation of most warfare, typically involving attempts to forcibly acquire capital, food, or territory. And a lack of power is closely related to unhappiness, which makes its consolidation alluring. As Philo Judaeus said, No slave is really happy, for what greater misery is there than to live with no power over anything, including oneself? Money has always been a critical piece of mankind's notions of sovereignty and slavery. When naturally selected by free market processes, money is a culmination of the collective logos, a synthesis of individual self-sovereign expressions. But natural money has been hijacked by artificial tyrants. The reason we call states sovereigns today is only because they are the gangs that hold most of the world's freely chosen money, gold. The so-called sovereign states. All right, uh, let's take a quick break here. Um, and uh, uh, hit our sponsor. I've got to get something to drink, and it's getting very warm in the room. Uh, so uh, let me air this out for a bit, and uh, we'll come back in just a minute. All right, let's jump back in now with the section titled The So-Called Sovereign States. Quote, I did not know I was a slave until I found out I couldn't do the things I wanted. Frederick Douglass for over 5,000 years, precious metals have been favored as money since they best fulfilled its five properties. Divisibility, durability, portability, recognizability, and scarcity. Gold came to reign supreme because of all the monetary metals, it was the most scarce. Scarcity is arguably the most important property of money, as without an assurance of supply limitation, 
someone always gives in to the temptation to inflate and steal the value stored therein. See agribeads, Panos cloth money, or fiat currencies today. Governments have always interceded in the market for money to commandeer gold coinage and warehousing operations, both of which sought to improve the divisibility, portability, and recognizability properties of money by issuing standardized coins or warehouse receipts. By monopolizing these certification function businesses, the state shifted the burden of trust from transacting parties onto itself. States throughout history have always made it their exclusive business to certify the value, weight, or fineness of money, coins or bars, and money substitutes, paper warehouse receipts. Remember, insulation from competition interrupts the truth discovery process engendered by free markets. For this reason, trust placed in any monopoly always ends up shattered. All national currencies began as paper promises for real money. Today, these currencies are no longer redeemable for real money and instead have been transformed into perennially unfulfilled promises called fiat currencies. Governments require societies, a restriction of the collective logos, to transact in these money substitutes and reserve the exclusive right to manipulate their supplies as a means of siphoning wealth, aka stealing time from citizens. In effect, fiat currencies are uncollateralized debts undergoing slow-motion default while their use is forced on society. All the while, central banks continue to hoard the real money, gold, and perform final settlement with one another in this authentic, free-market-selected medium of exchange. Seen this way, printing money actually refers to currency counterfeiting, the production of false promises, as currencies are no longer tied to real money. Said simply, fiat currency is a living lie. Regardless of whether you consider it a tool or a weapon, depending on the subjectivities of user intentionality, Manipulating money supplies is objectively useful for only one thing, inflicting wealth inequalities by stealing time. As G. Braski puts it, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. As a means of gaining an advantage in contests of will, currency counterfeiting is a weapon. In war times, belligerent nations have made attempts to counterfeit opponent currencies to cause hyperinflation. For example, Nazi Germany had plans to bomb England with counterfeit banknotes to sabotage their economy. And in Imperial Japan, the Noborito Laboratory experimented with currency counterfeiting operations as an economic subversion strategy. In peace times, currency counterfeiting is the exclusive domain of the central bank whose, quote, expansionary monetary policy increases the money supply by, say, 7% per year, that is, stealing only 7% of dollar-holder wealth and accumulation of time savings each year via counterfeiting operations. Of course, when circumstances become too uncertain, market participants naturally flock back to the trust minimization of physical gold, since money substitutes are at best promises to receive money in the future. They are vulnerable to default. 
Unlike fiat currencies, gold is an expression of the collective logos, not compulsion from a counterparty. The self-declared sovereign state is a business model built on the confiscation of self-foreign monies like gold and silver. The superior monetary properties of gold made it the most valuable form of self-sovereign money in history, a reign it has maintained since before the founding of ancient Egypt. The Great Pyramids Quote, there are two ways to conquer and enslave a country. One is by the sword, the other is by debt. John Adams Ancient Egypt is the archetypal tyranny in the Bible. Egypt is renowned for its great pyramids, monoliths which were built on the backs of slave labor. Indeed, the grandeur of these constructions owns a major debt of gratitude to the many slaves whose time was stolen by the pharaohs, masters of ancient Egypt. To gain a glimmer of understanding as to just how arduous the construction process was for even a single great pyramid, consider this data point from the book Heroes of History by Will Durant. Quote, According to Herodotus, the pyramid itself required the labor of 100,000 men through 20 years. Many slave hours went into building the Great Pyramids, but history has even worse pyramid schemes. To quantify this time theft from Egyptian slaves more precisely, again assuming that each slave spent 5,000 hours per year engaged in manual labor, a workforce of 100,000 slaves building for 20 years equals 10 billion hours of time stolen a staggering amount of man-hours condemned to the brutality of physical bondage during the construction of a single Great Pyramid, but terribly, still less than the time stolen by the greatest pyramid schemes in human history, fiat currencies. As Henry Ford foretold, It is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. A pyramid scheme is an investment scam based on a hierarchical setup of network marketing in which higher layer participants profit at the expense of those lower down. Fiat currencies are pyramid schemes erected by central banks who restrict access to and suppress the price of gold, which would otherwise outcompete their inferior currencies on the free market since gold is reliably scarce and holds its value across time. The use of fiat currencies is compelled via legal tender and tax laws. It may be hard to believe that the world's most popular currency is a pyramid scheme, but the symbology of the U.S. dollar tells its own story. The all-too-familiar of the pyramid with the all-seeing eye. Novus Order Seclorum is Latin for New Order of the Ages. This symbol appeared soon after the founding of the Fed. Perhaps it refers to the new system of slavery implemented under the moniker of central banking. After a long game ledger domain by governments, these pyramid schemes came to dominate the world. Fiat currencies are debt-based money substitutes controlled by central banks, which impose these monetary networks on users and suppress all competition in the market coercively or violently. 
similar to the Grau Pará and Maregno Company. Most despicably, it is the poorest people in society who, by necessity, hold the majority of their wealth in fiat currency that are most victimized by this fraudulent system. At the pinnacle of fiat money pyramid schemes is gold, a technology selected as money by the cumulative free choice, the collective logos, of countless entrepreneurs throughout history. Paper currency abstractions of gold were introduced purely to make it more convenient for exchange, not to replace it. Over time, the option to redeem currency for gold was eliminated, giving governments full control over currency scarcity, and therefore, an unlimited capacity to confiscate wealth from their citizens by compromising its supply. In effect, every time a new unit of fiat currency is printed, euphemistically called quantitative easing or QE by central banks, new layers to the pyramid scheme are laid from the top down, and the inflationary costs are externalized onto those using fiat as a store of value. Worse still, each unit of fiat currency is leveraged so that one unit is multiplied by several orders of magnitude by the time it becomes part of the broad money supply. Looking at the Fed as a specific example, after netting service fee revenue for itself to fund its operations and a 6% annual dividend to its undisclosed shareholders, the Fed uses the new fiat dollars to purchase U.S. government debt. Freshly printed, more accurately, electronically generated, fiat dollars are then doled out at the discretion of government bureaucrats, who unsurprisingly tend to favor the bankers, corporations, and lobbyists that pay for their political campaigns. Detestably, this dynamic reallocates wealth from the poor to the rich. Robin Hood would be ashamed. So long as people remain sufficiently passive yet productive, these pyramid schemes can be built even higher and continue to operate as a weapon of wealth extraction, time theft, for their political perpetrators. However, since there are no free lunches in this universe, this fiat currency supply expansion cannot continue forever. As layers continue to accumulate in round after round of QE, and people are implicitly taxed harder and harder through price inflation, trust in the currency becomes diminished. Like Hemingway said about bankruptcy, this happens gradually at first, then suddenly, as inflation gives way to hyperinflation. A total meltdown of the economic trust money is intended to facilitate in the first place. At this point, the central bank master has pushed his fiat slave citizens too hard as they finally reach the edge of their economic livelihoods. Fortunately, thanks to Bitcoin, these financial pyramid schemes can no longer be shielded from direct competition, as they are from gold. All fiat currencies are critically dependent on the ability of central banks to subdue competition, the discovery process that would otherwise disrupt their illusion. Owning 20% of the global gold supply gives central banks significant influence over its price, which they actively suppress in the paper markets. Without intervention, fiat currencies would quickly collapse to the superior value proposition of gold as money, as people always favor a money that holds its value across time by remaining scarce. 
In this regard, Bitcoin, the world's only digital gold, represents a major breakthrough. A monetary technology that is disruptive to gold, resistant to competitive suppression by central banks, and the one-time discovery of an absolutely scarce money. All monies exhibit a multi-level marketing valuation dynamic. For Bitcoin, early adopters benefit disproportionately by anticipating later adoption by others. The Bitcoin economic bootstrapping process is characterized by a virtuous cycle. But unlike the unknowable supplies of fiat currency pyramid schemes, Bitcoin has a universally known supply. For fiat currencies, the early adopters are perpetually those with access to the printing press, a positional asymmetry, a political privilege that makes the game unfair. A more symmetrical system, Bitcoin is uniquely characterized by perfect information, meaning that all market participants can see the rules that govern it, verify that there will never be more than 21 million units, and determine precisely when each will be produced. Meaning, all unexpected supply inflation for Bitcoin is optimized for holders at absolute zero. Perfect information is a prerequisite to the economic concept of perfect competition, an ideal yet unattainable market condition where competitiveness is entirely unhampered by unnecessary regulations and wealth generation is maximized. A great promise of Bitcoin is to pull global markets closer toward this state of perfection by separating money and state. Laid in layers of permanence, this digital gold pyramid outshines the inherent uncertainties of fiat currencies. Since money is, quote, insurance against uncertainty, its demand is centered on the relative certainty of its monetary properties, and Bitcoin optimizes for all five. It exhibits the divisibility, durability, portability, and recognizability of pure information and the scarcity of time. Like death and taxes, the certainty of 21 million Bitcoin is a concept that cannot be refuted. Coupled with the incentive to front-run future adoption of this digital, absolutely scarce, and theft-proof money makes Bitcoin a game-theoretic gravity well that the market for money simply cannot escape. Paradoxically, it is precisely this inescapability that is leading to the liberation of more and more fiat slaves worldwide. Symbolized by its fixed height in the image above, the absolute scarcity of the Bitcoin monetary pyramid increasingly outcompetes fiat currency pyramid schemes as they grow comparatively taller and less trustworthy through supply expansion. Eventually, these proverbial houses of cards collapse into the full transparency and certainty of Bitcoin. Whether it is understood or not, in the sphere of money, the known serves as protection from the unknown. Viewed this way, we have much to be hopeful for in the world, as there is finally an incorruptible alternative to the completely unethical system of central banking. Bitcoin is honest money freeing the world from the falsehood of fiat currency. In a transcendental sense, 
Bitcoin may actually be what the ancient alchemists spent centuries pursuing. The incorruptible substance, called the Lapis Philosophorum in archaic texts, that would serve as an antidote to the corruption of the world. As Jordan Peterson wrote of alchemy in his profound book, Maps of Meaning, quote, The sequence of the alchemical transformation paralleled Christ's passion, paralleled the myth of the hero and his redemption. The essential message of alchemy is that individual rejection of tyranny, voluntary pursuit of the unknown and terrifying, predicated upon faith in the ideal, may engender an individual transformation so overwhelming that its equivalent can only be found in the most profound of religious myths. The Lapis Philosophorum is agent of transformation, equivalent to the mythological redemptive hero, able to turn base metals into gold. It is, as such, something more valuable than gold, just as the hero is more valuable than any of his concrete productions. End quote. Alchemical methodologies were proto-science, experimental processes practiced for thousands of years that were foundational to the later development of the scientific method. Even Isaac Newton was an alchemist. As a school of thought, alchemy was a fork off of the church, premised on the belief that redemptive knowledge could be found in the laboratory of nature, a heretical concept at the time. Standing at the vanguard of human technological achievement, existing as the only money characterized by a manipulation-proof supply, and inspiring earnest transformations in the lives of true believers, perhaps Bitcoin actually is the lapis philosophorum pursued by alchemists for centuries. The incorruptible substance giving rebellion to state tyranny, and in doing so, bringing mankind closer to God. Bitcoin is the truth, and by one definition, God is expressed in the truthful speech that rectifies pathological hierarchies, or as Benjamin Franklin said, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Like freedom, love, and truth, God is timeless. I'm not talking about a guy in the sky here. The ancient idea from Genesis is that God is the force that freely confronts the chaos of potential with courage, truth, and love to convert it into good and useful order. Being made in the image of God, we are all sovereign individuals imbued with the Logos, a self-generating power responsible for our ability to harmoniously reconfigure the natural world into good and habitable space. Our future is seeded in our imaginations, a reality we call forth by freely exercising the Logos in thought, speech, and action. The Logos is the divine spark intrinsic to us all. Realizing that words can only miss the mark of spiritual truth, we can venture to say, God is the anti-entropic principle eternally propagating through all life. As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. To most truthfully embody the divine principle of the Logos individually, and more closely approach the timelessness of God collectively, we must triumph against the evil forces that steal our time secretively 
and constantly. Stealing time. All right. I think we're going to stop there because we're getting back into uh, this, this whole section about the Logos and uh, the Lapis Philosophorum and all of that good stuff um, was kind of wrapped up right here. And then we get back into uh, the Fed, the state of uh, what quote-unquote capitalism is and all of that stuff. We, we kind of talk more about what's happening today and what it really means and, and trying to uh, he gives an amazing, if you haven't seen the uh, thread yet on Twitter, uh, an incredible way to uh, uh, calculate the amount of theft that has occurred, the, the time and the human life that has been soaked up, that has been confiscated by the central banking and government system uh, of uh, manipulating and controlling our money. Um, but like I said, this piece is amazing. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Uh, and it's going to be great to have a full, unabridged, uh, unbroken copy of this in audio uh, for anybody who wants to listen to this. There's just some fascinating ideas in this. And some. Uh, he actually links, there's one thing that just blew my mind. I had no idea. I always wondered who, like, because there are, there are shareholders. There are private shareholders of the Federal Reserve. And I just, I never had any idea. There's not like any easy way to look up and find out who those people are. It's just this completely behind the scenes thing. And it's supposedly just totally okay that this is the case. Um, and he said that, uh, to, you know, it, it takes a service fee for itself uh, to fund operations and gives a 6% annual dividend to its undisclosed shareholders. And I, I clicked on that and there's actually a link of the payout and the details of that. And I just had, like, that's just utterly insane to me. There are literally people who, like, with the Fed's balance sheet, the amount of money that they're printing are getting paid dividends off of this. And that's just a, a next level, like, add insult to injury to the utter insanity of this system. Um, but I want to go ahead and get, I want, I want to save the talking since, since we've, we're about two thirds of the way through this. A piece. So I really want to put the commentary at the end of tomorrow's episode. And I don't want to get too much out. Um, there is just a really cool idea that I wanted to hit before we close this one. Um, is that uh, there's there's a line contrary to conventional wisdom, money is not the root of all evil. It is actually just a tool for trading time. And that was probably the biggest shift for me. I think remembering, uh, and it was really, I think uh, probably the thing of greatest impact, which I intend to read on the show, actually, at some point. Um, but the money speech from uh, Atlas Shrugged uh, really had me considering what the tool of money was, like what it actually did in society. Because it was, I mean, I totally believe that money was the root of all evil, you know, like it just, I don't know, it was just, I guess, beaten into me or it seemed obvious. Um, but I also heard another quote at some point, and I want to say it was from one of my favorite economists, is probably Thomas Sowell or somebody. But um, uh, he, uh, the quote was that the person who hates money is the one who will sell their soul for a nickel. Um, and uh, after reading the money speech and and really seeing like one one of the 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 kind of crux of that whole speech and and laying out the argument that uh uh Danconia or uh, Francisco Danconia 
uh, did in Atlas Shrugged was that we, we can either trade in money in an independent medium uh, or, or we can trade in people and control. Um, and, and it was really about, like, the way he lays it out, it's really the back to Rothbard's uh, anatomy of the state, that there is the political means to gain and uh, obtain wealth, and then there is the economic means, whereas the economic is the to trade and, you know, see everyone as, as the logos, that you are an individual and that I have to come to, I have to reach agreement with you. I cannot coerce you. I cannot force you. I cannot steal from you. But in doing so, we aggregate information. The price system becomes that most powerful aggregator of all of our values. Um, just like he said, it's the language of value. It becomes that speech. And we are allowing the speech and, and, and truth to emerge from our collective wisdom in economic trade when we actually trade with each other as people and we allow our own knowledge and our own individual experiences to inform our ability or, or our, uh, our, our prices that we are willing to pay, our measure of value for the problem we are trying to solve or the product we are trying to get or um, the time we are trying to get back um, because we all have that limited. And then there is the political means. There is, there is the opposite of that where we would force each other, where um, we, would, uh, uh, we would dictate what the other's value a declaration would be. We essentially limit the speech of the most important kind of them to take the value of their life and lay it on to the value of their money. It's to be unable to say my time is worth this because someone else is forcing, coercing, or uh, uh, stealing from you in such a way that you cannot tell the truth about that value in your life. And in the end, to enforce it all, to, to, to make it happen uh, through through a means of coercion, through a means of violent force, um, and, and then lead to the lie of uh, pricing, the, the lie of the economic trade, um, and you know, leads to all the moral hazard and everything that Breedlove uh, breaks down in this. And we've talked about this from so many different angles and so many different pieces. Uh, we've hit these ideas, but this one just does such a good job of bringing all of the moralities uh, together and why money why the corruption of money can lead to such an immoral, um, debased, uh, dying society. Essentially, it is the institutionalization of the lie of what value is um, uh, forced onto society rather than emerging from those participating, from those producing, and from those valuing their own time and their lives, which is what the emergent is, what the economic means produces. Um, and that's why free markets are not free without free money. And, and prices and valuations and truth is obscured. Morality itself is corrupted if you corrupt the supply of the money, if you do not have sound, independent money. And that is the ultimate problem Bitcoin is here to solve. That is the powerful revolutionary impact that sustainable, decentralized incorruptible sound money could actually have on the world. And Danconia says, money is not the root of all evil, it is the root of all good. And that we basically have two options. We can either deal with each other through the political means, guns, whips, and blood, or money. And this piece just, whew, just shows 
so many of the um, or just does such a good job of illustrating some of the principles behind this stuff and why this is truly a profound change in the nature of money. And it is not a 50 years ago change. It's not a really fancy app that we now get to use on our phones as opposed to credit cards. Like it is not any of these things. It's a profound foundational idea in changing what the nature of money is. Um, and, and that will have, uh, just, just like he said in this, it's the, it's the first real competitor to gold in the digital information age in, in a new era, or as, uh, as Toffler puts it, the third wave. And this will be the first and greatest shift in the nature of that technology of money as a tool since, since, since before the rise of ancient Egypt, gold has been the true like final standard of money since for as long as there was really a human history, like a, like a recorded human history. And to think that that tool could free us from the mon the modern version of slavery is hard to understate, uh, uh, potentially impossible to do so. Uh, so that is why we are here. Um, and I hope you guys are stacking sats, understanding what this, uh, what this tool actually is, um, understanding just how much of an impact it can have. Uh, and you know, that's why this show's here. That's why we, that's why we Bitcoin audible. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, first two thirds of this piece. We will close this out tomorrow and you're not going to want to miss the end. There is just some amazing stuff. And in the meantime, make sure you are stacking sats with swanbitcoin.com slash guy. My $50 buy is going to come in tonight, and I'm so, so excited about it. Um, and uh, also, a thank you. I think this one's going to be posted with Bitcoin Magazine and the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. So much love to those guys for sharing Bitcoin Audible out with the world. And I hope all of you subscribe and stay tuned for all the amazing reads we have here on Bitcoin Audible. I'm Guy Swan, and until next time, take it easy, guys.